0: Among the settlers who emigrated from Great Britain to North America in the early colonial period, there were three dominant motivations. All of the colonists had them all to some degree or another, but in almost all of them, one predominated in their minds. That was desperation, greed, and fanaticism. And the fanatics were concentrated on the stony, rocky lands of New England, not in the lush, uh, agriculturally rich region uh, of Jamestown, which was far too valuable to be left to a bunch of religious fanatics and had to be operated as a going, profit-seeking concern very early. Uh, The New England settlements were peopled by real believers, people who were adjusting to the rapid change of life that the early modern era had imposed on uh, European subjects by uh, enlivening their religion with a deep fire of personal um, revelation this is this is the the Puritan strain of Calvinism that explodes in northern Europe as capitalism emerges as capitalism destroys the old uh, feudal religious bonds that kept people together, uh, and that also forestalled a full domination of capital, were being destroyed uh, by the competition of the of the European states, uh, and, and capitalism was wrenching people from their landed understanding of religious uh, experience and personalizing it. Uh, and this personalization of religious experience became known as Protestantism, and it became the social logic of capitalism because it, Had an explanation. It had a praxis, a praxis that takes as its basis the notion that human interaction will no longer be dominated by the will of God. That is to say, our our natural, our felt natural relationships with other people and other things, because the market in its intrusion has now turned us all into strangers in a way that we hadn't ever been before. And that means that the social reinforcement of religious belief are minimized, they, they, are, they are dissolved, uh, and we are left more and more alone uh, in, in, in more isolated social circumstances in a competitive relationship with our, uh, our neighbor, our Christian neighbor. And the, the neurotic Calvinism that eru- erupts in England in the early 17th century uh, is a response to this condition from people who have forfeited the social tie but still need some way to be, reinscribe their belief some way to live their feeling of communion of godly connection of of a uh, connection to a transcendent notion that is defined by uh the world and the people around us and that world required a god that resided not at the hearth and not in public, a public that was now increasingly a market, it resided in the heart, It resided in the self, inscribed as defined against the whole, against uh, the social, and a God therefore who becomes unknowable, and inscrutable, and terrifying, and that is what Calvinism uh, imposes: this notion of God as someone who cannot be anti- something that cannot be anticipated, and therefore something that must be feared. Because Calvin took his rationalist mind to the question of religion in a non-asocial context and de- realized that there could be no confirmation of who's going to heaven or who's going to hell by the world that they live in, because that is a world uh, of chance and misery. And the experience of life on earth is determined by these these naturalized market forces that have intruded and replaced the social bonds of feudalism. If you failed in the market, you were on your own for the first time in a real sense. You were uh, There was no social expectation of uh, cooperation with the struggling. Uh, there becomes a struggle of all against all. Hobbes is born really in the market, not in history, and reality. It's born at this moment, this understanding of what it is to be a human in this desperate struggle for resources in an increasingly technological world. So in this world, God is no longer something that can be, whose will can be divined by the world. The world is now tainted, fallen in a real sense. We, we have only to fear and tremble before God and essentially act as though we feel a connection to him, as though, as though he were in our lives, because it is finally and totally out of our abilities to move towards God. It is up to God. And that means that there is predestination of souls, And there is no way of knowing if you're saved or not, except by spending your life acting like you are, which creates this terrifying internal panopticon that uh, drives eventually this class of people as they come to the United States and form their social order and become the most uh, adept merchants in the new uh, capitalism of the new world and become more and more neurotic. But in the initial wave of immigration, those those early Puritans were escaping a new order in, in England that they could not withstand morally, in that they could not stand to feel their connection uh, to the world, to each other, to be severed so easily, because it was too much to ask for such people to feel separate from God for so long. And so... They did the one thing that they could do. They tried to seek on what they thought of as a virgin and unspoiled territory where pre-existing social relationships didn't exist, that people of good faith, real belief, could come together and live together, cooperated, created a community of, of believers who could make a world where God's will could be known, where we could see God in the world because we are making it. Yes we're using the market. Yes we're using this new a social religious conception, but we are using it together to remake a religion that is rooted and grounded in the land as well and in our social relationships as well as in our hearts. This is an attempt to wrest uh, Protestantism basically away from the imperatives of the market to resocialize Protestantism. It can only do that absent the existing dominating st- totally uh Socially oppressive matrix of late feudal uh, European aristocracy. At this point, uh, the, the crowned heads of Europe are a debauched, licentious bunch. They have no, not a spark of godliness among any of them. They've lived too comfortably too long. They they have made heaven on earth uh, in the in the castles and in the courts, and as such, uh, don't really have to think too much about what happens after, or what they're giving up by hoarding all of that uh, pleasure. Because it's not precarious as it is for a downwardly mobile merchant in uh, uh, early modern England or a, a frantic amateur farmer trying to stay alive uh, in Massachusetts by digging some goddamn green out of the rocky soil of New England. And, of course, they were also desperate because many of them were downwardly mobile. And they were, of course, greedy because they imagined that they're that, – God's will in the world would be their pleasure, their enjoyment of the world with each other. So, of course, they would be able to make a comfortable life for themselves here by expropriating from people who did not count in their moral calculus, who were too abstracted from their social experience to resonate uh, as a full human. And they tried to make it work. The early New England colonies are essentially religious communes. I mean, they're they're sort of Jonestowns, but because of the... Uh, The fortuitous mass uh, death of uh, Native Americans in this region who had been absolutely cut down by smallpox infection courtesy of early American, uh, like, pre-English contact between uh, Native uh, peoples and and European fishermen uh, meant that there was a lot of land that was just not, uh, could not even be contested by the local Native populations. And then those who did survive kind of needed the, uh, after a while, needed the, settlers as much as the settlers needed them uh, or at least that they felt that to be the case or else they obviously could have killed them all. Um, but they build this, this little, these little uh, theocratic statelets. And of course they split over doctrine and Roger Williams and Ann Hutchison have to go to Rhode Island because, Oh, what is this? Oh no. If we leave it up to ourselves and we're in the market over time, we are going to end up creating a very, idiosyncratic religious convictions because they are not being uh, reaffirmed socially because I am not spending my time immersed in a religious sociality. I am spending it working. I am spending it trading, and I am spending it thinking about my soul as an isolated monad, not as a part of a greater spiritual tapestry, which is that is the consolation of religion. That's the actual thing that makes religious belief spiritually soothing it's the itch that everything's trying to scratch in modernity and can't quite make it and that is that we give it the name of god but god is just our the accumulation of our positive relationship our a positive emotional connection to the experience of life to the sens the sensual engagement of our bodies with other people in the world so they spl- start splitting up start burning witches of course because It's not a stable conviction because it is not socially reaffirmed. In fact, there is a social competition. The more godly appearing are going to more likely be the saved, right? The more successful materially and the more uh, publicly pious will likely be the saved, right? If we think about it logically as God making a decision to save people, well, who's he going to save? It's getting ahead of God's um, thought process basically. And that's a drive towards success. And that is a competitive drive away from each other as they're trying to pull together. They're also being pushed apart by the competitive nature here, the competitive framework of being the most successful farmer, the one with the most land, the one with the most ease and comfort, the one who is able to devote the most of his life to the rituals and trappings of religious conviction are going to be the saved. And so, the the hearts of these religious communities are eventually just destroyed, uh, and capital eventually comes for uh, and over and consumes and overcomes all these social forms, swallows them, and digests them, and creates the the engine of North American capitalism, which is in the uh, the merchant trading communities and then later industrial hubs of uh, New England. Uh, it is Boston as a trading capital before and during the American revolution uh, and then the areas around Boston as the first industrial um, factory infrastructure in the United States, the uh, mills staffed mostly by young girls, something that you don't wouldn't think that uh, Puritans uh, uh, fixated on building God city in the wilderness would really accept, would think that was part of a fucking godly world where young girls are forced to go into a room together and risk getting their arms ripped off by fucking machines. But it is necessary. The competitive framework has now lost its religious patina. Now all of, by even the early republic, the descendants of the Puritans now barely believe in God at all as a real thing, have totally, of almost totally materialized their religious beliefs. John Adams isn't a Calvinist. He is a Unitarian. His son is basically uh, a agnostic and their descendants now are all of some or another strict secular humanist creed derived from the, 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 uh, the the social, the echoes of the social gospel of the original project of the city on the hill, like the social infrastructure necessary to have a godly uh, social order. Now we have that at the end of history, in the form of the, the secular creed of, of social liberalism. But that's all that's left because capitalism has hollowed out the rest. And while in the county houses of Boston, people are just quietly and contentedly turning into secular humanists, out in the fields, the people struggling to rend a living out of the, the, the rocky earth of New England, those who are uh, having to sell their labor for wages in the cities And be away from their families in order to stay alive. Those who are doing the monstrous work of extracting surplus value from uh, slave labor or someone living in a pioneer cabin and in a life or death mortal battle with local native uh, tribes whose land they're stealing. In those environs, the uh, pull away from a grounded religious tradition is much more traumatic, because it's not accompanied by total physical comfort and ease, which it is at the heart of capitalism. Around the edges, there is an accumulated misery that is piling up, that is increasingly being ascribed to the social order around people. People begin to feel that they are not living a life that can be conceived as of as can be conceived of as Christian, because they have been pulled. By the compulsions of the market, uh, out of harmony, really, with with the world around them, and they feel that, and they want to, they want to resist it. And so you see throughout early American colonial and then early American Republican history a cycle of explosions of religious fervor that accompany uh, certain new stages of American uh, colonial development and settler de- settlement development, uh, and the, and and in capital intensification. And so, one of the biggest bursts of these occurs in upstate New York. So, upstate New York had been land that had been relatively recently settled by mostly settlers from New England, who had essentially crapped out of social uh, life, uh, either be- from some combination of and because of some combination of, as we said, greed, fanaticism, uh, and desperation. Moved around some of the and a lot of them ended up in. Northern and uh, Western New York, because that land had been granted after the S- Revolutionary War, uh, had been, that land had been deeded to Revolutionary War veterans as payment for their service during the war. Uh, and a lot of it had been sold by those very veterans for cash in the economic crunch that happened after the Revolution, during the Articles of Confederation years. So a lot of that land was being sold on the open market and was being bought by people looking to find some stability some social stability and one of the things drawing the other thing drawing them there was the first and biggest public infrastructure pro- project of the uh, young America the Erie Canal. I had a mule his name was Sal went 15 miles on the Erie Canal It was originally funded by it was it was it was the brainchild of uh, of New York political dynast Governor uh, DeWitt Clinton. Who, uh, in the face of the Jeffersonian uh, hostility to, to publicly funded works, which was epidemic at the time, Clinton pushed as governor of New York heavily for a, uh, a public funded canal connecting uh, uh, Lake Erie to New York City, uh, and with the idea that it would stimulate economic growth. Now, this threw in the plate, fl- this is something that a lot of people in America thought was unconstitutional was also necessary for America's economic – for the American economy to grow. And so even though a lot of the public sentiment was against it, uh, the local demand for something there and also the power of the economy of New York Harbor at that point to of – the, of the New York uh, merchant class at that point who desired to see this for their own benefit, they would be able to do more – they would be able to do more trading. They would be able to make more money. And so they formed a powerful interest group pushing – for the Erie Canal, and it was begun in 1917, and it it took until uh, 1821 to finish. So from 1817, you see this huge burst of economic activity as the Erie Canal is being built, as a as as uh, laborers swarm from across the country and uh, from Europe to work building this canal. And then after the canal is done, this new efflorescence of uh, urban culture in these uh, ports along the canal, within like the within New York itself, sort of going down through New York. And it's this canal that brings capitalism in its advanced industrial form uh, to the the people who had fled the farthest from making an accommodation with capitalism, spiritually. The people who were demanding something more out of life than submitting uh, to this inhuman regime, who wanted to still feel God in their lives, and into their midst came this massive explosion of uh, capitalist trade uh, and uh, infrastructure development, uh, and it creates uh, the Whig Party in part uh, from the the political machine that comes up around Millard Fillmore in uh, in Buffalo and the Weed Machine around uh, William Seward. All all that energy uh, is unleashed by the Erie Canal, but so is a powerful amount of psychic discomfort and fear. This, this there's The, the, the hoofbeats are coming to people who have uh, been spending their entire lives trying to stay in some sort of harmony with a God that they could hear in their minds, and we're now having their ability to do so torn away from them. Uh, and there's a bit from Moby Dick in the chapter The Ho-Town Story describing a guy from the Erie Canal region that I think best exemplifies Exactly what the social implications of the Erie Canal's construction through upstate New York were. So, this is a guide uh, describing uh, the canal area. For 360 miles, gentlemen through the entire breadth of the state of New York, through numerous populous cities and most thriving villages, through long, dismal, uninhabited swamps and affluent, cultivated fields, unrivaled for fertility, by billiard room and bar room, through the holy of holies of great forests, on Roman arches over Indian rivers, through sun and shade, by happy hearts or broken, through all the wide, contrasting scenes of those noble Mohawk counties, and especially by rows of snow-white chapels, whose spires stand almost like milestones, flows one continual stream of Venetianly corrupt and often lawless life. There's your truest Ashanti gentlemen, there howl your pagans, where you ever find them, next door to you, under the long-flung shadow and the snug patronizing lee of churches. For by some curious fatality, as it is often noted of your metropolitan freebooters that they ever encamp around the halls of justice. So sinners, gentlemen, most abound in holiest vicinities. And then a little later. In some, gentlemen, what the wildness of this canal life is, is emphatically evinced by this, that our wild whaled fishery contains so many of its most finished graduates and that scarce of any race of mankind except Sydney men are so much distrusted by our whaling captains. Nor does it at all diminish the curiousness of this matter that to many thousands of our rural boys and young men born along its line, the probationary life of the Grand Canal furnishes the sole transition between quietly reaping in a Christian cornfield and recklessly plowing the waters of the most barbaric seas. I think it gives you kind of a sense of the combustible social situation that existed here in this area. And so over the next uh, 20 years or so, from, from the creation of the Erie Canal into the 1830s, you see this huge explosion of religious fervor in the counties of northern New York. It becomes known as the burned-over district, as in every part of it has already had a massive wave of evangelical passion seize the uh, local uh, population and burn through so that all of the by, at a certain point, all of the energy had become extinguished. And what extinguished it was participation by many of the people of this region in a new explosion of millenniary prophetic religious movements that emerge around charismatic figures who claim a personal prophetic relationship to their Christian souls. And they gathered people around them in new understandings of religious life. And the thing they all had in common was, is that they attempted to break people away from the relative isolation of rural life and the alienation of urban life that saw people spend very little time in churches. Many of these people uh, were devoutly religious, read their Bibles uh, fanatically, but had little to no uh, interaction with formal church worship. Uh, and, and after a while, this in a, in a situation of constant precarity and, and marketization of life uh, leads to a, a explosive demand, a, a spiritual cry for some sort of new understanding of religious life. And that meant coming together uh, into a community of faith that meets together more regularly, whose uh, religious uh, worship is more passionate, is more emotionally invested, provides more of a cathartic relationship to to the alienations of life uh, than was allowed for uh, in the more sterile environs of conventional Protestantism. And so in, during this period, you see the explosion of uh, the Millerites, a, a sect around a farmer named William Miller who uh, got his notebook out, went to his Bible, and figured out uh, mathematically that the world was going to end in four years. I believe it was four. It might have been less. And gathered around him a huge community of believers who went to the top of a hill on the appointed day and waited for the world to end, and when it didn't, had to walk back down. Many of them having sold all of their possessions, and they, they, uh, and amazingly though, that was not the end of uh, the movement. Uh, it eventually morphed into the Seventh Day Adventists, uh, and to this day, they refer to this moment as the Great Disappointment. And uh, the Branch Davidians, by the way, uh, of Waco were a offshoot of the Seventh Day Adventists. So you see how this prophetic tradition uh, ex- explodes through America as people try to stabilize their relationship with religion in an increasingly godless world, an increasingly marketized world. But at the same time, the Jehovah's Witnesses are emerging, which is a very scholastic approach to biblical liter, literalism, uh, and that comes up with essentially a, a new textual read on the Bible. It's essentially literary criticism. Jehovah's Witnesses is literary criticism of the Bible. It says, you guys have been interpreting this wrong the whole time. This is what it actually means. and And, and they get a lot of people in this increasingly uh, intellectualized age, this increasingly uh, empirically minded age, that gets a lot of supporters too. This is also the beginning of a lot of the spiritualism that will emerge more in the late 1900s among the uh, uh, anxious middle class when you have rapping seances from the Fox sisters in Hydesville, New York. Uh, And you've got the shakers coming together into religious communities of purity, which die out because they don't have sex with each other. But then you have more secular uh, utopian movements like the Oneida Society uh, who are uh, inspired by the utopian socialist Robert Owen and the French utopian socialist Charles Fourier into building a equitable uh, free uh, social order that is not captured by the market and there's, there's more than this even than uh, Jemima Wilkinson and uh, Anne Lee John Humphrey Noyes and they all get their supporters they all gain their adherence of people who are looking for some new way to, to, to feel God in their life every day in America. And a lot of them are being pulled, as you're seeing, towards community, towards trying to pool resources, which is possible in this frontier land where the assumption will always be that the native population will be dispossessed and their land will be taken. And in that context, many people come together with a new take, basically, on Christianity that facilitates the perpetuation of religious community, and the most successful of these movements, in the in in the sense that it did the most to shield those who participated in it from having to be stripped of their religious belief, be stripped of their uh, understanding and sense of God in the world, uh, are the Mormons. One of the families that moves uh, uh, to Upstate New York in this time, pursuing uh, uh, elusive. Uh, security is the smith family of vermont Uh, joseph smith senior and uh lily smith uh, are the descendants of those puritans uh and they uh find themselves making a precarious living in that that notoriously fickle new england uh topsoil and eventually uh after being uh defrauded by a business partner uh and and forced to sell a farm in vermont uh Joseph Smith leads his family on a journey across New England. Ping-pongs from uh, New Hampshire to Massachusetts to Connecticut. Eventually comes back to Vermont, and it's in Vermont in 1805 when they give birth, where Lily gives birth to uh, Joseph Smith Jr., uh, one of their 11 children. But eventually, uh, the entire Smith family moves to Palmyra, New York, in this region. Uh, And uh, this whole time, both of the Smith parents are having Deep religious uh, journeys. Lily is a devout for her whole life. is a devout Congregationalist, which is the descent, which is the evolved form of the early Puritan church in New England. But his father was never able to find any real comfort in any of the formal denominations. Uh, he bounced around from churches, and he mostly prayed silent privately. Uh, and he also was he would claim that he had religious visions. And so in Palmyra, young Joseph Smith, who in his teen years, or as a young man, was uh, stricken down by a bone infection, uh, which caused him to have to spend three years on crutches. So young Joseph, this this kid who had to sort of nurse himself back to health, by his early teens is already evincing uh, certain sensitivities to the world around him. He is a scryer in that he he, uh, claims that he can look through – glass to to find buried treasure in the in the in the woods which is part of a, a tradition of of american like european settler folk magic which uh until you have totally you know ripped people away from the land uh, is going to exist within any uh, religious tradition uh, and that definitely survived uh into this point anyway within christianity although it's it's days are numbered uh, he also was a uh, water dowser who claimed that he could find water uh, by using a stick to draw him to it. Uh, and by the time he was 15, uh, he was having uh, ecstatic religious visions that he described in detail to his parents and to family friends and to uh, relations. Uh, and these these visions were so powerful, and the way that he described them was so uh, conv- uh, evocative. And the language he used felt so Sort of ethereal and godly that people were very very credulous. In 1832, he he would describe his he would describe his first youthful vision as a pillar of light above the brightness of the moon at noonday came down from above and rested upon me and I was filled with the spirit of God and the Lord spake to me saying Joseph my son thy sins are forgiven thee so that I may walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and one of the visions he got from this. Uh, voice that he later uh, identified with the angel Moroni were directions to uh, hidden golden plates that were buried in the woods, uh, and eventually Smith produced two people around him these these golden plates with d- writing on them that appeared to be hieroglyphics and that Smith called New Egyptian. Now. Well, uh eventually Smith is Smith gains uh, a a a small following of, of of devoted early believers including a man named uh Sydney Bridgman uh who has who shares some visions with with Smith uh and who with Smith helps translate these plates using uh first uh, a number of stones placed in a hat that that he looked uh into uh and also uh, uh a pair of Spec, sort of spectacle things that he claimed came uh, with the plates, and there's a number of, attempt, of attempts over uh, the months to translate uh, these plates. Uh, and some document uh, there's some some parts of it are written, they're destroyed, they have to start over again. Uh, what ends up coming out of this process is this thing that becomes known as the Book of Mormon, which is a description of it is as it is they later call it uh, a another testament of jesus christ uh and this is uh it is essentially a pseudo-biblical description of a the eternal battle between two tribes in uh in ancient america the nephites and the lamanites uh, one uh pious and one uh profane uh and it describes the ups and downs the battles between these two tribes uh and essentially the, the the decadent cycle of empire uh it is a reminder that Earthly institutions will collapse, and that life absent a godly uh, uh, prerogative uh, is flicker is is fleeting uh, and doomed to failure. That all human projects uh, are dust, and so therefore the only redemption to this can come uh, from Christ. And Christ does come after his death, according to the Book of Mormon, to reveal himself to these. Americans, these early Americans, the Nephites, and this is essentially a attempt to rebrand Christianity, which has all of its most evocative associations uh, uh, with other places, with with the Middle East, and uh, which is removed really in its in its narrative from like the here and now of American life. Mormonism uh, gave the American land that people uh, were trotting on an enchantment that it previously hadn't had it was land trod upon by jesus the the american uh, people were were now were not just the the uh castoffs of a european christianity or a Mideastern eastern christianity they were the the heralds of a new american christianity uh and it even though this flew in the face obviously of a lot of protestant orthodoxy uh smith thanks to his charismatic Manner, the fact that the books themselves are compelling, especially when you consider that it is well established that they were written, quote unquote, by Joseph Smith with his head down, slowly saying sentences, and on the other side of a curtain, one of his transcribers writing down what he was saying. It was not anything that he had writ. He wrote uh, by himself, or or plagiarized from another source. It all came from his head, uh, and so whatever degree of of fraud he thought he knew he was perpetrating and whatever degree of real truth that he thought the fraud was worth doing to convey. uh, All of it was enough to keep him uh, very impressively focused on trying to convince people of this. And he had a very good luck at accumulating a large number of, and this is crucial, relatively economically prosperous uh, early supporters who were taken by this American vision Which was also, I should say, radically uh, universalist in its uh, convictions, because one of the things that had made Protestantism so dour over the years and had uh, sort of required, necessitated, sort of, and had necessitated the Methodist break with predestination, is that eventually you can't imagine anybody getting into heaven, and you essentially need a, a a social jubilee to make up for the fact that it becomes harder and harder to live as a Christian. As capitalism overdetermines our lives, and so not only did Smith have this vision of a godly America and of a godly American people, but also a promise of of a loving God. Uh, according to uh, the visions of, of Joseph Smith in this time, uh, he he was revealed the heaven. He was he was he was shown heaven by God, and what he saw was essentially a eternal nightclub with the different VIP sections. Uh, he was shown a heaven that was divided into three levels, the celestial, the terrestrial, and the telestial. Uh, and in them was the vast, vast majority of humanity. According to Smith's visions, only those who personally re- uh, rebuke Christ to his face, basically, uh, are spared some measure of salvation in that there is an eternal life, uh, but there are higher levels for better performers. <laughs> those who uh, are able to spend their time on earth perfecting their character through their actions, perfect their character through their actions, uh, they would be able to ascend to a higher level with the, with the highest level being the, the celestial level for those persons who spent their time on earth perfecting their character per, to, the, to the highest degree. Uh, and this is, this is a universalist vision, but it also maintains a social engine it doesn't tell you, hey, everybody's saved, relax. It, it says, uh, everybody's saved, relax. But now, wouldn't you rather be more? If God has given you this gift and you have nothing to fear, wouldn't you rather more, a greater understanding? The greater your degree of understanding and communion with God is the greater your, upon death, understanding of the universe. So it contains within it both the the comfort of sort of a spirit, a social welfare state, uh, a, a safety net. Uh, it also gives room for personal, uh, the rewarding of personal refinement. And according to Smith's vision, the only way you could refine yourself is if you could live a life that was fully invested with religious belief, which means you had to escape the clutches of uh, capitalism as it was p- pincers, as it was squeezing the life out of upper New New York from both ends of the Erie Canal. So very early on, Smith's vision of the Mormon church is for it to be a new city on a hill, a resuscitation of the Puritan idea of reconciling spiritual desire to live uh, in a godly way with the bountiful continent of America by seizing some of that available land due to uh, expropriation of natives and then remaking social relationships away from the market and towards community, and that is what Smith spent the rest of his life trying to do. Over and over again, building religious communities that then eventually collapsed from internal crisis and external pressure, causing the the uh, movement to a new uh, outpost, all the way until uh, the final reckoning at uh, Nauvoo, uh, when when Smith is killed by uh, was killed by an anti-Mormon mob which really uh, ends the the prophetic age of the uh, Mormon church, and which is where we'll end this episode. Spoiler alert. The first is Kirkland, Ohio, where Smith tries to organize a social mechanism, uh, uh, so, so organize a body of believers into a corporate social form. So um, not only does he begin the creation of a church hierarchy, so this flies in the face of uh of most of the other evangelical preference for uh, horizontal authority within uh the movement uh, and rep- instead imposes a hierarchy. Uh now it is a re- lay religion. There is no formal priesthood within Mormonism. Every uh adult male is ritually initiated into a priesthood that gives him certain uh, authority within the church, but only within a hierarchy of other other authoritative authoritative bodies. Uh, there's the first presidency of the church, which was held by uh, Joseph Smith. There was the Hi- uh, high council. There was the quorum of the 12, which is a pretty baller name. Uh, and there was the, another larger group called the 70s. And all of these different groups were made up of different, more or less influential people within the Orban community and whose job it was basically to maintain a uh, coordinated social effort. Uh, and one one of the things they did with this uh, hierarchy uh, was to try to initiate something that Smith called the uh, United Order, uh, which was a church program to have land held by uh, people in the church, uh, owned by the church itself, and then the products of that land distributed to members of the church according to their need. Uh, and this was a doctrine of the early church that Smith, uh, insisted on when the, his followers started moving to Ohio. Uh, and so he attempted to try attempted to create this Christian communal s- social order in Kirkland. And this is very similar to the things that were happening with the Oneida organization only you know, more explicitly uh, tied to religious prophecy uh, rather than you know, secular morals. Uh, but there was a problem with this effort, which Smith tried again and again as he, as he uh, moved west. Uh, because the richer members of the church were more reluctant to communalize their property than the poorer members. And so the people who signed up to do this tended to be those who needed more than they had, uh, and that led to struggle. Uh, and it's part of, it was part of that process that was pulling these people apart from each other as it was bringing them together. Uh, but Smith made a very valiant effort to try to transcend uh, the market within the bonds of the church and to allow people to live uh, as free citizens with, I think, his eventual most apocalyptic vision, uh, imagining eventually all people coming under uh, this new social order because of its superiority, because it would win in competition with uh, the grubby emergent capitalism of the the now godless American uh, empire. So by the uh, the mid-1830s, Smith is in Kirkland, Uh, He's also sending uh, people out into the Missouri territory to look for new lands there because they're already getting static from local non-Mormons who are freaked out by this weird cult. And there's already a bunch of uh, former Mormons who break away from the movement and then come back to denounce it because uh, there's a lot of people who come to Kirkland uh, who come because uh, of Smith's promise of access to personal prophecy. And so there are tons of prophets running around Kirkland. Uh, and there's also a lot of ecstatic religious behavior. There's speaking in tongues. There's rolling on the ground. There's, uh, there's all kinds of ecstatic reveries. Uh, and a lot of people claiming different things that to have been told by different things by God, many things that contradicted what Smith was saying. Uh, and Smith had to battle against a lot of these early uh, computers because he had really opened the door for that. Uh, and the thing that aided him was this social structure that he had built, this, this hierarchy uh, uh which people were invested in and, and which gave them a direction uh, and so when uh, rivals challenged Smith, Smith was able to affirm an orthodoxy that was uh sustained by the majority of the church and so a lot of people left in resentment and some of them came back to denounce Mormonism a lot of the most fervent anti-Mormons in Ohio and uh, Illinois and Missouri are are former Mormons but it may but the church maintains its cohesion in 1837, Joseph Smith has an idea to charter a bank because he is looking to you know, harness capitalism to this social vision, to this religious vision. Uh, and, in, so, and a bank is a way to do that. It allows you to circulate currency uh, and build capital, uh, especially in these, quote-unquote, frontier conditions. Uh, the, the legislature uh, refuses his charter, uh, and Smith does it anyway, uh, and starts circulating hundreds of thousands of dollars in currency from this bank. Which he picked a bad year to do that because 1837 was the year when the uh, flow of credit from Europe slackened a little bit, causing a massive uh, currency crisis as all of that circulating currency from all of those banks uh, was called in and all of the bank vaults were found to be empty, including Smith's Bank. So after the, the fall of the, the bank with uh, the local population turning against them, Smith moves uh, to Missouri, where they're already banning an encampment of Mormons. Uh, but in Missouri, there is an immediate ex- uh, escalation of conflict with the local uh, non-Mormons, and something that is later called the Missouri-Mormon the, the Missouri War erupts. Uh, and uh, this is an escalation of conflicts between local non-Mormon settlers and settlers and Mormon settlers uh, in Missouri, uh, a lot of it over Allegations of things like uh, polygamy, which by this point, Joseph Smith and his uh, inner circle of Mormons were all a big time into. Uh, But also there were questions of political power. Uh, Mormons were largely abolitionist in sentiment and Missouri was a slave state. There was questions of whether the Mormons were going to be uh, able to dominate local politics because of their numbers. And there was a question that they were trying to impose religious views on those around them because uh, what the Mormons are trying to do here bind Americans to something higher than themselves in order to uh, maintain and protect like this spiritual dimension of their lives struck non-Mormons, the people who had more readily acceded to the, uh, the framework and, uh, and and values of the early Republic uh, found uh, tyrannical uh, and threatening the same way they did Roman Catholicism uh, and Southern slavery. It was all a, a vision it was a haunting vision of being socially coerced, but because of, of sort of the, the wild possibilities of the of the frontier, people really did conflate like the coercion of a slave to the coercion of someone who uh, operates out of a sincere religious conviction that informs their actions. and it was enough to cause uh, an escalation of tensions. Uh, the Mormons formed a militia that they called the Danites, which uh, carried out some violence against local uh, non-Mormons. A Mormon editor had his uh, printer smashed by a mob. Loves Mobs love smashing printers in the 19th century, by the way. One of the absolute favorite mob activities of the 19th century. Like turning over a car after a uh, football game is to the 20th century. That was busting up uh, newspaper printers in the 19th century. Oh, also tarring, fe- tarring and feathering, which they did to the editor. Uh, and then th- this escalated to the point where, the, where Smith himself was uh, jailed by the state of Missouri uh, for uh, committing treason against it uh, while a massacre of uh, Mormon settlers left 17 uh, women and children dead. Uh, And that combination finally made the Mormons get the hint, uh, and they uh, moved in 1839 to Nauvoo. Not Naboo, no, there, there were no Gungans. Nauvoo. A small town in southern Illinois, which was originally called Commerce, hilariously enough, uh, was chosen by the Mormons to become their new site of settlement. And they, in 1839, uh, it was absolutely swamped with Mormons who essentially took it over uh, and renamed it Nauvoo, which means to the beautiful. Uh, And immediately Smith and the Mormons started about trying to build a uh, new city. They used the same design that they had in earlier attempts to build uh, towns, big, wide, four-acre lots with lo- straight streets into a grid plan, basically, with lots of land uh, in the city uh, for agricultural production. Uh, the idea being that you would create a an economic engine that was self-sustaining. The people would eat the land grown there, and then they would trade amongst themselves and with others, and they could grow prosperous. But it would be... At every level, an economy controlled by members of the religious community, by people within the communion, people who went to the newly built temple uh, and, and went along with all of the myriad of social activities that the Mormons, uh, with all of these social engagements that Mormons uh, became uh, maniacally obsessed with. The theatrical groups, uh, dances, there were parties, uh, there was no ban on or uh, contempt for secular entertainment because it wasn't really secular. Uh, most fervent Protestants in the rest of the country viewed things like dance and theater as decadent and and sinful because they associated it with with out there. Uh, But for the Mormons who felt like in the bosom of a religious community, uh, they weren't threatening because they were all happening within uh, a family. And family became, for Smith, the main uh, structure he used to try to build this new... Durable social network that could withstand the buffets of capitalism. Uh, And he did that through plural marriage, polygamy, his most controversial revelation, one his wife was not happy with and which many of the women of of early Mormonism were not happy with, but which in Smith's mind went towards solidifying social bonds with people, making real the abstract uh, connections between members of a community many of the wives that uh, Joseph Smith picked up, and he did, he was like Pokemon there for a while in the early 30s, catching them all. Many of them didn't leave their homes. Uh, he was, uh, he, they called it spiritual marriage. Uh, and what it, all it did really more than anything was confer a social obligation onto people that hadn't been there before. This is all part of Smith's family-focused vision, a uh, social vision, uh, turning the family... Uh, into a model that is then reproduced in the church itself and the society that the church creates The church and the people working together, growing crops together, trading together build all through this network of families and family becomes the defining metaphor for, uh, Mormonism, not the individual. Uh, and so another part of that is, and Smith has another prophecy that, uh, that those who die, who died before uh, the church was formed, and those who die outside of its uh, vision can be baptized posthumously, which makes sense because remember, if there's no real hell for, for uh, Joseph Smith, everyone basically is saved to some degree or another. But a baptism posthumously could raise that soul to the higher level. Uh, and, and that sparks a mania for genealogy that defines Mormonism to this day. And which serves as a reinforcement of these ideas of family as a transcendent uh, institution whose hierarchical structures are reproduced, who's benevolent, I should say. And that's the assumption behind all of this. And this is, of course, what is corroded over time and is now, you know, a parody of itself. But was the original vision uh, was a, a benign hierarchy of family that is reproduced throughout eternity and that the afterlife is a continuation of those family bonds, because one thing that uh, that sets Mormonism apart from all other religious traditions within Christianity at this point is its emphasis on human the limitlessness of human potential. In traditional Christianity, humans are lesser than God in a meaningful sense. God is an eternal being; we can only eventually seek union with God. And like I said, like that is religion as an expression of that ineffable. Sense of connection with uh, eternity that is pulled away from, in our, that we are pulled away from every day in, in our lives by the demands of, of life, by the demands of sustaining ourselves, which by now, by the time of the Mormons, means uh, engaging in this degraded market, in this degraded uh, asocial life where you are meeting in your day strangers who you're interacting with uh, through these cold, rela- uh, cold commercial relationships. So, of course, for Smith, uh, our families are eternal. You stay with your family for eternity, but your old family, your ancestors will be there too. Everyone will be there in a great interlocking connection, but you will maintain your individuality. And that is why where Mormonism really is the perfection of uh, American religion, because it imagines God, not as an eternal being, but as a human being Uh, towards the end of his life in Nauvoo uh, Smith, laid out a theory of God as a perfected, essentially, man, and that all humans, all human men anyway, had the potential to be perfected eternally into their own God. This is a cosmology that could only exist in the context of North American settler colonialism. Th- this vision of, of, of a limitless frontier of, of, of human potential and, and, uh, and domination more than anything, uh, is not thinkable in in regions of the world where uh, where human society has settled into a, a static relationship with itself. Uh, in North America, the asymmetry between the technological capacity of the settler colonists and the native population meant that an unprecedented mass of territory was up for grabs. An entire continent could be rewritten by people if they had the will to do it, and Smith's vision was to write that vision of eternal pros, uh, eternal perfection into the world by dominating the continent, and then of course the stars and eternity, and eventually to become God over one's own universe, and this is this is the spiritual resolution of the con, of the problem that the Puritans had, which is that they uh, they felt God as a alienated being as an inscrutable uh, wrathful mind whose not whose intentions uh, and desires uh, could not be divined and that is a terrible god it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a vengeful god but a few hundred years later with the creation of, a, of this machinery of westward expansion and this promise that is undergirding all of uh, every social class that there is uh, an opportunity Uh, that there is access to livelihood and prosperity, in that context, God can be good. And more importantly, you can be God. That singular, that isolated perspective that you now are forced to live with, that is separate from God, that can become God literally. And our ability to cooperate in the settlement of the continent, will let that happen. And for this moment, Smith has his flag planted uh, in Illinois in the town of the newly christened town of Nauvoo, where he was elected mayor in 1842. Now, at this point, the Mormons have been hounded out of Ohio, hounded out of Camp, uh, Missouri, and are already having conflict with the local non-Mormons in Illinois. All of this is, is putting a toll on Smith's ability to hold this thing together. Uh, and in that environment, Smith begins a uh, massive recruitment drive to bring converts to the fold and then instead of having those converts stay at home, come to Illinois to live here in the new Zion. Uh, And the place where uh, this missionary work had its most profound uh, impact was Great Britain. So by 1838, there's 1,400 Mormons in Great Britain. By 1847, it's 16,000. A big reason for this is that the industrial revolution is ramping up in England and, and citizens and people there are being thrust into these newly horrifying conditions of, of industrial labor. Uh, And it's among the populations of new urban workers in Manchester and Liverpool that the Mormons see their best recruiting done. Uh, Not only are they, do these people hear a vision of religious community, that vision is one of communal uh, property It's one of uh, cooperation. Uh, It's one of fresh air, access to food, uh, escape from the wage relationship, uh, and more than anything, a way to emigrate without fear of just falling through the cracks uh, as a a relatively poor immigrant, which happened to a lot of people when they got to the United States. The existence of the Mormon community precluded that for the English emigrants. So while he's doing this, Smith is also trying to build up the, the church's national profile. And in early 1844, uh, he decides to run for president. So Smith had been arrested in Missouri. He was really being castigated in the national press. By now, there is a national awareness of what Mormonism is and a general repellent repulsion towards us. Uh, and Smith tries to get ahead of it by uh, getting a bunch of his supporters together to form a political party and uh, get him on the presidential ballot. Uh, so the, the Mormons got together, formed a new party called the Reform Party, got a convention, and nominated Joseph Smith for the presidency. Uh, he, he won on the first ballot, if you can believe it. Uh, and his vision was to pitch to America the idea of a theo-democracy. Uh, and it would involve compensated emancipation for slavery. He wanted to create a national bank. Uh, he wanted to reduce the size of the House of Representatives. He wanted to abolish prisons, including debtors' prisons. And uh, opposed the annexation of Texas. Smith viewed this campaign as a way for him to get Mormonism out there, and he sent a bunch of campaign. He he spent a bunch of campaign operatives to eastern cities with the dual goal of pitching his presidential campaign, soliciting support at the ballot box, and also to recruit new Mormons. But before election day could happen, uh, trouble came to Nauvoo. So in early 1844, while he's getting ready to run for president, there's a dispute among some of the Mormons in Nauvoo, and uh, some of them uh, form a splinter group. Uh, they were mostly married, they said, because they, they claimed that Joseph Smith had proposed to their wives, and they weren't into it. Uh, so this splinter group of Mormon breaks away uh, from the, the church uh, but begins to criticize it, and they put out an issue in June of uh, a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor, which calls for reform of the church and condemns Joseph Smith, calling him a would-be tyrant and the- theocrat uh, and, a, and a polygamist demon uh, and that he was trying to use polygamy to seduce people's wives. Smith, uh, as mayor of the town, got the city council together and banned the newspaper, and they went down and they smashed up that printing press. Uh, and that caused a local furor among the non mormons of the area, who were already terrified of the uh, the the pretensions, the theodemocratic pretensions of Joseph Smith, uh, and feared that he would try to make th- him them like him, uh, and this attack on free speech, which of course is very funny, because as I said, there's nothing any political mob of any persuasion in the 19th century loved doing more than destroying printing presses, but they used this became the uh, pretense for. Uh, Smith to be uh, arrested by a local sheriff and then while uh, him and his brother uh, were in the second floor of a, of a, of a sheriff's office uh, a mob with blackened faces stormed the jail at Carthage where Joseph and his brother Hiram were being held uh, and both were shot Hiram in the face Joseph Smith fell through the, the window Uh, His last words were claimed to have been, Oh, Lord, my God. But uh, they kept shooting him after he hit the ground. And that was also obviously the end of the uh, Joseph Smith presidential campaign. So here we have now this community of believers around this prophet who had organized their lives around his preachings. We're now trying to live together in some approximation of community with these uh, new jerry-rigged political institutions, uh, and this church hierarchy with its rituals and and uh duties that bound each member to to each other member uh was left without their their prophet the one whose vision they all believed in and who could move the church one way or another uh with his preference uh and with his voice uh he was the prophet i mean by, by this point he is he is gotten a monopoly on, on the, the the on all of the major prophecies of uh the Mormon community. And now he's gone. What next? Uh how does this group reforge their beliefs uh in a way that allows them to to keep together in in the face of the the serious resistance they face from without and also the contradictions that are uh, rife within it. Well, tune in next time for part two of The Mormons, Going West. Farewell, dearest city, farewell for a time. We are called now to leave for a far-distant climb. Fair city of Joseph, we bid you adieu. Farewell for a season, farewell. Amém